Welcome to the show. I prefer for the time being to not give you a name, but rather an alias. You have most certainly seen, or at least heard, of my likeness. A wide-brimmed hat, a white scarf, roses of three colors, and a bottle of cognac. The good people call me... The Toaster. Ah! See? You do know me. Tonight, we'll be dipping into the horrors of the mid-19th century. The macabre tales you'll hear in this series aren't for the faint of heart, and the darkness that befalls the lives of the victims, painful to experience. Proceed with caution. We should offer you an admonishing word. Much of what you hear on this program is entirely non-fictional. At least the journals and writings contributed by one Rufus Griswold. Recently, we've gained access to a previously undiscovered journal from Mr. Griswold, contemporary and rival to the late Edgar Allan Poe. I've opted to give you a glimpse into the mind of Mr. Griswold by reading to you his journal entries, many of which disparage our beloved writer. You will henceforth be transported to a world dark in nature, rife with disease and reckless abandon, dripping with stories, poems, and lectures of the most gruesome, horrific, and painfully real. Later in the show, I will offer you some insight, influence, and historical analysis, which I believe will increase your understanding and terror of the world which you were about to fall into. It is a context which, tragically, I know all too well. I ask you now, if you'll indulge me, and allow me to take you to a scene both familiar and foreign. Baltimore, 1849. October 1st, 1849. I'm told he's writing something new. Something in the style of a diary. The bastard. Ever since I succeeded him at Graham's, he spent his days trying to undermine me. I deserved it too. The job and my generous salary, which is comparably larger than his, will verify that point. I will not let these petty quarrels define me. However, I must endure a lifetime of this pest, this rat. I cannot fathom a future wherein Poe lives. He's in Baltimore now. The madman spends his days wasting away at pubs, downing bottle upon bottle of brandy. How he puts a quill to paper is beyond even God's understanding. And still, still he releases these stories most morose and popular. He has even taken to recounting true events. The mesmerists have hailed him a documentarian of their science. He publishes accounts of the facts of the suspension of one Valdemar. How does he put himself into these positions? Where did you meet this mesmerist, Poe? Look at this. This story. 
factual, he so claims. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Poe. Of course, Miss... I don't believe I've caught your name. Please, just call me Miss Smith, for anonymity's sake. Certainly. Shall we begin? Please, before I begin, I should explain to you a little bit about mesmerism. Please do. It is a practice of putting all living things into a trance-like state. Those under the influence of the magnets we use are more susceptible to suggestion, perhaps to the point of a mesmerist having complete control over the subject's body. The originator of the practice, one Franz Mesmer, where the name is now derived, called it animal magnetism. He believed that in every living being there was a Lebensmagnetismus, an invisible natural force that could affect the body and mind. In the instance of Monsieur Valdemar, we discovered that we could, for all intents and purposes, prolong the inevitable fate. The inevitable fate? Why death, sir? Ah, right. Please, explain what you mean. Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that this case, the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar, might excite discussion. It will be a miracle if it does not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the personal affairs from the public, at least for the present, I fear a garbled account may make its way into society and might become the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations and, most naturally, a great deal of disbelief. Go on. It must be now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I can comprehend them myself. Succinctly, they are these. My attention, for the last three years, had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and, about nine months ago, it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. Articulo mortis. At the point of death. Not quite on earth, but not yet to heaven. It remained to be seen, first, whether... In such condition, there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity, the last in especial from the immensely important character of its consequences. It seems a difficult thing to procure subjects who would allow you to test such a bold hypothesis upon them. Correct. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend, Monsieur Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica. Monsieur Valdemar who has resided principally at Baltimore since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme sparseness of his person, his lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, 
the latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions, I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance, I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months, previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed thysis, uh, tuberculosis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. He didn't fear death. Not in the slightest. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was, of course, very natural that I should think of Monsieur Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for... Although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination in death, and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It has now been more than seven months since I received from Monsieur Valdemar himself a subjoined note. My dear Smith, you may as well come now. Doctors D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight. And I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. He summoned you. True to his word. Indeed. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, the eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in the bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. His left lung was largely cartilaginous and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right, in its upper portion, was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles, running one into another. Several perforations existed, 
and permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. They were of comparatively recent date. Independently of the thysis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta. But due to the ossification, exact diagnosis was rendered impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that Monsieur Valdemar would die about midnight in on the morrow. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, doctors D and F had bidden him a final farewell. It was not their intention to return, but at my request, they agreed to look in upon the patient at about 10 the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with Monsieur Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case of sudden accident, might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student, with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from further embarrassment. It had been my design, originally, to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed, first, by the urgent entreaties of Monsieur Valdemar, and secondly, by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Monsieur Valdemar was desperate to get on with it? He believed such as I did, that perhaps this magnetism might save him, heal him, even. And how did you proceed? We will get there. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state, as distinctly as he could, to Mr. L, whether he, Monsieur Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly. Yes, I wish to be mesmerized. I fear you have deferred too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. Passes, which were? A series of actions that have a calming and trance-inducing effect on the individual. Some call it hypnotizing. Which passes, in particular, worked best with Monsieur Valdemar? That, my dear sir, will follow me to the grave. I cannot risk it. Not again. I see. Please, madam, continue. I can give you general descriptions of the passes, however. Of course. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all my powers, no farther perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to my appointment. I explained to them, in a few words, what I had designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony. I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time, his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was 
stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although a very deep sigh, escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its gasping throes were no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleep-waking, and which is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver, as in incipient sleep, and with a few more I closed them all together. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously, and with the fullest exertion of the will, until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loins. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine Monsieur Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L and the nurses remained. We left Monsieur Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning when I approached him and found him precisely in the same condition as when Dr. F. went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable, unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached Monsieur Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the ladder gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now, but to my astonishment, his arm, very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine, I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. Is it safe to converse with those in trance? To the best of my knowledge, it was not unsafe. In my experience, mesmerized individuals are completely benign in their semi-conscious state. I've not come across a negative story or history of speaking to mesmerized individuals. And in this case? Monsieur Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He, he made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips, and was thus induced to repeat the question, again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of a ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words... 
asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, Monsieur Valdemar? No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again. I did so, saying, Monsieur Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Was he consciously speaking? I don't believe so, Mr. Poe. Given his rigid body, I believe he was thoroughly asleep, only induced to speak to me through mesmerism. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that Monsieur Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene, and this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleep-waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly, the skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots which, hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek, went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosed in full view of the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Monsieur Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. Mr. Poe? Yes, madam. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. Perhaps. Would you like to stop? No. It is my business simply to proceed. There is no obligation to continue on, Miss Smith. I'd like to, however. Certainly. Please, on your own time. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Monsieur Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses, 
when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are, indeed, two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable for the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation, as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second place, it impressed me. I fear, indeed, that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended as gelatinous or gluttonous matters impress the sense of touch. That is particularly vivid in description. Like I said, the latter of this story is likely to be met with disbelief. Can you elaborate, perhaps, on this voice you've heard coming from Monsieur Valdemar? I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct, syllabification. Monsieur Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, The man remained in all respects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand, the only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence, was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue, whenever I addressed Monsieur Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwaker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon we were called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by doing so. It was evident that, so far, death or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. 
It seemed clear to us all that to awaken Monsieur Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy dissolution. One moment, Miss Smith. Did you say that death had been effectively... paused? Yes. At least the physical elements of death had been. You mean to say that the usual natural decay of death had not begun? No rigor mortis? Nothing? Not at all. He was stiff, certainly, but the following actions that proceed when death overtakes an individual did not occur. Did you find any explanation for it? From that period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at Monsieur Valdemar's house, accompanied, now and then, by medical and other friends. All this time the sleep-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. Astonishing. And this is all true. As true as God sent his son to us. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening, or attempting to awaken him. And it is the, perhaps, unfortunate result of this latter experiment which will likely give rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking will be unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving Monsieur Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. What was it? The rotting of the eyes, I believe. It was now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm, as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so. Monsieur Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, and at length the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep. Oh, quick, wait. thoroughly unnerved and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. Mr. Poe, before I continue, I must warn you. The detail in this is quite graphic, surely horrific to your readers. We will nevertheless persist. 
All right. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, emit ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once, within the space of a single minute or even less, shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity. He... He decayed. He decayed right before my eyes. Seven months of decay in a single minute. And his body? A pulp which I have described. The smell was incorrigible. And this is entirely true? Entirely. I must admit, Mr. Poe, this event... I fear that maybe I've damned myself. How do you mean? I prolonged the death of a man using something... something dangerous. I refuse to tell you how I did it in part because nobody, woman or man, should possess the capabilities which I have developed. Capabilities most morbid. You are quite silent, Mr. Poe. Um, yes, yes. I've just been wrapping my mind around this all. How do you mean... When I was twenty-two, my brother Henry, he had become sick and died, 1831. I was approached by a man, one who claimed to be able to awake Henry. I knew at the time, although failed to emphasize it, that there is no man who could wake the dead, but, but mesmerism, this animal magnetism, it might have saved Henry, at least long enough that I could have gotten to him before he died. Did my story not put to bed any inkling of hope you might have had for reviving your brother? It does, Miss Smith, it does. But you allowed Monsieur Valdemar to lie in this suspended state for months. Months. I... We could have held on to Henry only for a few days. Nothing more. Make no mistake, Mr. Poe. Mesmerism, at least in conjunction with death and decay, is no simple affair. There is nothing of redemption there. Please, put it out of your mind before the thought corrupts you like it did me. There is no saving of my soul, Mr. Poe, but you've hope yet. Henry took to drinking before he died. The bottle is, well, it's my only connection to him. Drunkards are still saved by the grace of God, Mr. Poe. Mesmerists are not. I really must be going. Please, put the thought out of your mind, I implore. Certainly. Consider it forgotten. The man is a maniac, he is. He could not reanimate his brother, yet he persists. He writes these stories, claims them to be true. And he sells. He sells his extraordinary tales. No God-fearing man should pick up this garbage, this, this sacrilege. I cannot bear this any longer. I have to find the man. I have to put an end to this madness. Of course... After the initial shock that this story was touted as being fact, it came out that it was entirely fictional. 
Many of America's finest were taken by this story and thoroughly tricked by it. Horace Greeley of the Daily Tribune said of the story, Whoever thought it a voracious recital must have the bump of faith large. Very large indeed. It was said that several good matter-of-fact citizens were tricked by the story. It wasn't until some time later that our dear Mr. Poe acknowledged the story as fiction when he wrote to a reader who called the whole thing a hoax. Hoax is precisely the word suited. Some few persons believe it, but I do not, and don't you. It's a contested artifact. Many of the scholars throughout the years determined that the case of Monsieur Valdemar was indeed fiction, a hoax. But there have been, and continue to be, individuals who claim they were directly witness to the destruction of Monsieur Valdemar's body. It is even believed that this mesmerist, when approaching her own death, wrote a journal with everything she had ever learned. All of her mesmeric experiences, her practices, her meditations, written into a single journal. That journal has not yet been found. As for why Poe might have called it a hoax eludes even the most versed in Poe's life. But I have it on good authority that it was entirely factual and Poe simply bore the guilt of having been among the first persons to have to sit through a story so gruesome. Why the rest of the world opted to call it a fiction is perhaps a little more complicated. Were they simply hearing that it was a tale and so they continued to perpetuate that lie? Was Poe's reputation too great as a poet for them to believe anything out of the man's mouth, or, or rather pen, could only be fictional? Or was it darker, more terrifying? Was it perhaps that it was easier on the consciences to the many readers? Was it less terrifying to chalk it all up to hoax than to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, man is quite capable of suspending death or reanimating a corpse, of doing things that for thousands of years have been attributed to black magic, the devil, the occult, backroom practices that should never see the light of day? Do these people, the friends, family, and strangers of the 19th century, know something that we do not? Perhaps they did. Perhaps they didn't. Until next week, good night. <laughs>